And now if you're able, would you please stand with me as we read God's word? And we'll be reading from Hosea. Uh, to find that, you have Ezekiel, Daniel, and then Hosea. So hopefully that helps a little bit. I'll be reading from chapter 4, verses 12 to 14. And then we'll go to 1 Thessalonians. And it begins, My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to, sac- to play the whore. They sacrifice on tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes, and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. And now let's shift to 1 Thessalonians, and this is chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, and, and I am reading from the ESV. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, that you know what instruction we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Steve. It is unfortunate we don't have Elder Appreciation Month um, because I'm, I'm very thankful for Steve. So maybe today's topic probably surprises you as you've been making your way, as I have through this letter, if you remember this little church in Thessalonica, uh, against all odds, humanly speaking, has become a strong church, so much so that they're an example, chapter 1 and verse 7, to every church in their region, that the word's going out uh, from them in uh, really hundreds of little interactions that in many ways it is. It's a model church. That said, even a good church and a healthy church is not a perfect church, hence chapter 3 and verse 10. You remember this is a Paul wanting to come see them face to face, 
And he uses this phrase to supply what is lacking in your faith. That's what he wants to do. In other words, there's still some areas uh, that need to be readdressed, as in any church family, that we come back to the great truths of our faith to say, remember again what it means to follow Jesus. Where are the cultural pressure points? That is, this is what it means to follow him. And so that's what he's doing in chapter 4, that he is reminding them, particularly on this topic, of where they're to go once they're converted. To draw attention to that, I want you to see this uh, twice-repeated phrase, chapter uh, 4, verse 1 and verse 10. You'll notice, so they're doing great, they're walking in the Lord, that they're pleasing God, and Paul wants them to do so more and more. Then in verse 10, he's urging them towards brotherly love, and he would have them do that more and more. So the goal of the Christian life Uh, is to not just be converted, which we're all thankful for that great work that God has done in our lives. He gave us new hearts if you're a Christian. We've been changed from the inside out. And from that point, our fate doesn't remain a stale commitment on the shelf, but rather a lifetime journey in growing in Christ-likeness, to be more and more like Jesus. Have a look again at verse 3. A lot of people say, well, what's God's will for my life? You know, should I go this direction or that direction? Should I interact with that person or that person? You say, there are those issues that come up that we can turn to God, but notice explicitly, for this is God's will for you, your sanctification. What can we say for certain about everyone who surrendered to Jesus, that it is God's will for our life, that we increase in holiness and become more and more like the image of Jesus. That's his plea. You Thessalonians, you're on the right track. You're a model church. Keep going. Now's the call to go more and more into faith, hope, and love. May those things abound from you in increasing measure. Now, I wonder, as this letter was being read aloud, uh, at what point, maybe like their, their ears like ours, you know, would kind of perk up. So you think, here we go. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk to please God, fair enough, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. All very fair, but then this. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you would control his own body in holiness and honor, not with the passion of lust like the nations. I wonder if those Thessalonians would react like many among us might. Say, well, hang on here a second. I'm on board with, you know, there's a God. How else will we get here? I believe that he's the creator of all things. I'm really drawn to the person of Jesus because he's so unique on the historical scene. And I can affirm all that in, the private, uh, in my private life. But hold on here. What's this about God being interested in my sex life? Now, that's out of bounds. That's private. He's got no business there. Say, so you heard that? Hence the title of the sermon. Why does God care about my sex life? Can that be parsed out? Now, if you're in that camp, which I, again, I think many are, they say, you know, I acknowledge God, I believe in God, but I don't want him telling me what to do, especially in this area that, again, most of us would say is a private and intimate thing, never to be discussed and certainly not a theological matter. Now, if you're of that camp, right? If you're of the camp that says, look, I believe in God, but I don't want him informing this part of my life. I think one or all of the three following things have to be true. Firstly, it's true, that if you believe that, that you, you would embrace a 
radical disconnect between belief and behavior. Say a lot of uh, nominal Christians do this, hence why the charge of hypocrisy is often lobbed at us, right? That we can say, well, what I believe in my heart about God and metaphysics doesn't really inform how I interact with other people. Uh, that what I think doesn't really have much to do with what I, what I do in my day-to-day affairs. Now, you see, if you, many of us, right, as members, you say we talk about this a lot, you, you can't disconnect the vertical from the horizontal. Say, this is what God has done for me and Jesus. And if that's true in my life, then it does inform how I interact with other people and how I use my body. That to disconnect belief and behavior is to open ourselves up to hypocrisy and to miss the fundamental truth of Scripture that there's a calling on all of our lives that our orthodoxy, that is our correct belief, informs our orthopraxy, our right practice. That what we believe spills over into our ethics from start to finish. Every Pauline letter, right, the first half's usually theological and doctrinal. This is what God has done for you in Jesus. This is the truth. Repent of your sin. And as you do that, this is what the Christian life looks like. Doctrine, ethics, doctrine, ethics. The truth of God, the vertical dimension spilling over into how we care for one another, to how we use our bodies. Belief and behavior connected. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy. Secondly, you think God's got no business in our sex lives. This one becoming more common, and we'll talk about this at length next week. You'll notice this is part one. Is that there is a disregard for the body. You see, when a letter like Thessalonians was written, that there's the, uh, the you know, what's in the intellectual ether? You know, how's everybody thinking without, uh, you know, how, what was the default thinking mode of most people, you know, hanging around a, a Greco-Roman city? Say there's a strong overtone of, of what would be a, a a Platonistic understanding of anthropology. You know, what is a person? See, the Platonists had by this time for hundreds of years taught, don't we all know that the body is evil and it traps the soul? That inside we have this good part that we call spirit or soul, the immaterial part, and it can be liberated. We long for it to be liberated from this thing that causes us a lot of pain and limitations, namely our body. Therefore, we can do whatever we want with our bodies. Now, you see the great irony of this. You go onto a college, college campus, not very many would say, I'm an open Platonist. Say, it not happen very often that some would say, I practice the, the ideals of Plato. Yet many in our culture today are Platonists. They say something like, well, who I am as a person is uh, something different than what I have in my body. There's a disconnect, that I want my personhood to really thrive at the expense of my body, and I can do whatever I want with my body. I can manipulate it, I can abuse it, I can indulge it, you see? So the same kind of anthropology that was facing the Thessalonians, a disregard for the body, is the same thing that is coming upon our culture that says the body is not a good thing, it's something that can limit you, you manipulate it, you do what you want so that it matches up with who you really are, verse, may I say, consistent Judeo-Christian ethic. You ready? Your body is a gift from God to be used for his glory. You're not to be embarrassed of it. You're not to mold it and abuse it, but rather to say, God, thank you for my body because it's the vehicle you've given me. Yes, for the immaterial part of of ourselves, that is the soul and the spirit, but also it's the way by which I can express your love. That we cannot disregard our bodies if we're good Bible readers, that the body matters. And again, more on that at length next week, so please pray. That in many ways is a more challenging message. Thirdly, again, if you're in the camp, believe in God, shouldn't talk about what I do in the bedroom. If you're in that camp, you might be harboring a kind of view of a, a, 
a, a duplicity in the, the public and private life. Um, look, there's a way that I do things out in front of all of you, that when I'm in polite society, there's a way to behave, and what I do privately will really never spill in or affect anybody out there, that there can be this radical break. What I do in my home and on my private time doesn't matter, and it won't infiltrate my public life. And I would push back, again, being good students of God's word as Christ followers, but all three we'd push back on. Our belief informs our behavior, we're body-affirming. If the body is a gift from God, we affirm that. Therefore, there's a right and wrong use of the gift that God has given us, a teleology that we all have parts and that those parts inform what they're to do. And thirdly, that the public and the private, the best that we can close that gap, I know there's always things we do privately that we don't do publicly. Of course there are. But the closer that can, the gap can go, the less duplicity we'll have in our lives and the more, uh, shall we say, you know, peace and serenity that there's not a public and private gap. So those things before you, uh, today more exegetical, make three points uh, here, uh, here now. So notice number one, that the will of God is for us to grow in holiness, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that we'd be more and more set apart, more like Jesus, right into that you abstain from sexual immorality. First question, big topic. And by the way, notice how many times, even in these short verses, Paul says, I'm telling you nothing new. Uh, this is what I've talked about from the beginning. Nothing's changing here. Every Christian, this is what has always been taught. This is what we call the historic Christian position, the biblical position. So matter number one that we must talk about today is the redefinition in our time of sexual immorality. Now, how many times have I, again, heard some kind of lecture or, you know, you have a YouTube video and you'll have some professor up there, right? Somebody, because of the letters after his name, we tend to believe what they say. And they'll say, well, sexual immorality for most of the history of the church, they really didn't understand what this meant. And we used to think that it means this. But in fact, what it means, it's, it's a much less limiting thing than what, uh, what the church has always taught. Something like that. And what happens is sexual immorality, when Paul says abstain from sexual immorality, that it tends to just exclude the things that everyone would exclude. For example, well, Paul here, we all know that this is excluding bestiality and pedophilia. Uh, you know, two things that almost everyone will agree on. You say, as long as you say that I'm here tonight to give a lecture to say, you know, pedophilia is bad and bestiality is bad and everyone's nodding their heads, so that's a good word. Except sexual immorality contains other things. And those other things at a point in our culture were recognized as being outside the bounds of the body and outside of Christian faith. For example, homosexuality. Say a lot of stuff now saying, well, when Paul says sexual immorality, that's not, and this, you know, from nominal Christians trying to redefine that term to say, well, it doesn't really mean that. So here's, here's the point, and this is the takeaway. When we do the work of reading all that the Bible has to say about the body and sexual ethics, that sex is to be used within long-term monogamous marriage between a male and a female. Everything else outside of that boundary is what the biblical term sexual immorality means. Now, if you're a member of this church, 434 of us in a few weeks, about 500, every member of our church, this has been obvious to the members because this is one of our affirmations. So this is the biblical position, the historical Christian position derived from God's word. Here it is. All humans are created by God as either biologically male or female, 
Sexual relations between a husband and wife are commended by God solely to be enjoyed within the married estate. We believe that any form of sexual immorality, Pauline term there, right? 1 Thessalonians 4, including adultery, bisexual conduct, fornication, that is sex outside of marriage, homosexual behavior, incest, and the use of pornography is sinful and offensive to God. That's what the term means. Why do I talk about this today? A lot floating on there, and we see there's a great cultural tug to redefine these things, right? That the church wants to become an echo chamber of the culture. Hey, look, Christianity's becoming less popular. Let's echo what's going on out there and hope people think that we're not that different and maybe they'll come to our church. Not good. So the passage says, the way that you're going to be different, the way that I made you, is that you're increasingly set apart to be like Jesus, which means that sex is to be used, enjoyed within marriage. Which brings me then to what I would call an opposite type of error. That a lot of people, and for historical reasons, would say, well, you Christians, you're against sex. We are not against sex. Look at our affirmation again. Sexual relations between a husband and wife are commended and are to be enjoyed. Say, I smile today, God's kindness, when we announced James Frederick Ryan, that little baby. Say, we all know how James came into the world, don't we? And what we all do. Say, so, yeah. Say, Christians are not against sex. They were not prudish that we're not weird or awkward about it. We simply say that there are parameters that God's given us where it can be commended and enjoyed. And again, historical reasons for this, again, in certain pockets, but St. Jerome and St. Augustine, as much as uh, they've given us good gifts, are but men and had very odd views on sex, and this lent itself to the long history uh, in the Roman church of clerical celibacy, right? So the priest could not be married because, you know, he was a holier guy and he couldn't dabble in those types of things. So consequently, pockets of the church have very funny views and are awkward and weird about sex. That's not the biblical position. Here today, God is for sex. It's a good gift for him, from him. It's to be enjoyed within long-term monogamous marriage. As I was exchanging uh, texts with Steve this week, as I often do. He gave me a great line, uh, perfect for what we're talking about today. And he said, sex is like fire. When it's kept in the firebox, it's warm and enjoyable. But if you get that fire outside of where it's supposed to be, it's dangerous and destructive. I think that's the message today. You keep it where God designed it to be, within marriage, very enjoyable and pleasant. You let it get out, Trouble's on the way. Now, if you say, now at this point, some, you read a passage like this, God says abstain from sexual immorality. A lot of us, uh, what you call a, a pure prescriptivism is fine. What I mean by pure prescriptivism is if the Bible says it, I do it. Praise God for you. If you're here, you're a longtime Christian. Look, I read my Bible. I believe in God. I'm surrendered to Christ. If the Bible says something, I do it. And if I could just, for others, you say, well, I, I just like another layer. Why? You say, why is, why is that the parameter before being destructive to others that we'll get in, into in a moment? But here, here's the thing. Se sexual fidelity in a long-term committed relationship illustrates God's covenant love to his people. So in that first reading of Hosea, you know, maybe you were looking for it in there. 
But it was a rather, it's a rather graphic prophecy. God's people who pledged their allegiance to the true God had went and started dabbling in the cults. Now often, very interesting, idolatry manifests itself in sexual immorality. False worship does spill out into our sex lives. And in the ancient world, this, you know, you go to the cult of Artemis in, in Ephesus, right? And you participated by worshiping Artemis by having union with a prostitute. So in a very real way, to worship a false god meant misusing your Bible. But they're often connected. If I'm worshiping the wrong thing, which makes sense, if I'm a materialist, say, then I am going to use my body in a way that is just pleasure-seeking. So our commitment to one person to use sex, something special, only in that marriage is something that has much larger theological implications about God's covenant faithfulness. So Christians, this is how we use this gift, mirroring the unique partnership of God with those with whom he's redeemed. So what I, what I hope we heard in this, what Paul's saying here, is that sexual immorality really does mean all the kinds of sexually deviant behavior that the Bible elsewhere outlaws that's outside sex within a marriage, which in fact is good and can be enjoyed. So sex is a gift from God to be used in monogamous marriage. Uh, to break those boundaries really says something about our allegiance to the Lord. So secondly then, what are we called to? You abstain from sexual immorality. Yes, you stay away. But what are we drawn to? That each one of you may know how to control his own body and holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. Say, so there's the positive. What are we called to? We're called to a kind of restraint, a way of not simply indulging our appetites whenever we feel like it. Why does this create such a tension? Because our culture has taught us exactly the opposite. Self-control and restraint are old positions of the past, that we've broken those boundaries, and you deserve to have sex, and whenever you feel like it, go for it, so long as there's consent. You're hungry, you eat a burger, you're thirsty, you grab your juice, you want sex, you find somebody who agrees, and you go for it. You have an appetite, you satisfy it, you deserve it, and you can't be fulfilled without it. It's a cultural narrative, is it not? Have sex as often as you want with whoever you want for pleasure for one another so long as there's consent. It's an appetite to be satisfied. Now, here's where I think we get more to the issue why Paul would be concerned about this. If that's the case, again, cultural narrative, Sex is a good to be consumed on my terms when I want to feel pleasure. Say, what's the problem with that? I think there are three problems with that. We'll take them in turn. First, when sex is a good to be consumed, I'm going to inevitably commodify other people. That is, make them a means to my end. Secondly, is I will reduce what God had made to be relational to something procedural. And thirdly, that I will become enslaved to my appetites. Now, if we could take those three in turn, again, we're operating on the secular premise that my appetite should be indulged so long as there's consent. If that happens, others will become an object to bring me a good. Can you see that? I want this now. I want to feel pleasure now. Who can satisfy my pleasures? It's using another person to satisfy me. This is the commodification of people. We turn people to objects instead of persons in the image of God. Now, how is this happening? I challenge you on a couple of things. First, listen to how, I, I, I can't obviously speak as a female, but I will say, listen to how young men talk about sex. 
It's all in the language. You say, where are we in the, the lexical tradition? It's in the, the, the lexical range of conquest, uh, of conquering, of accomplishing, of, of uh, you know, gathering an object. That's the way that they talk about it, right? Collecting. Those kinds of words that you could just transfer to the kind of industrial machine or the war machine. It's been a couple of years now. Uh, I had performed a wedding and a lovely evening sat down, I always enjoy those conversations, get to meet what other people do, and I sat down at the table with Mallory, and there was a, a middle school, I think math teacher, but definitely a middle school teacher in a good school in Lorain County. And I start to eat and exchanging pleasantries, as I often do, and I said, tell me what it's like to be a middle school math teacher. First thing the lady said was, well, I see a lot of, and she uses a word for the, the female genitalia. And I looked at Mallory and I said, did I ask the wrong question here? I, I, uh, I didn't, did I go? And I think seeing that I was a little bit taken aback, well, I see a lot of blank. She said, well, I spend a lot of part of my day that the young women uh, with their smartphones, again, what is this, 6th, 7th, 8th grade, middle school, uh, go into the bathroom, take pictures of themselves, and then send those pictures to the boys. And the boys, more or less, in my mind, I remember it's like more or less like the new baseball card that you're going around doing this. And I said, well, she said, every day, every day. Thinking, Lord, as a, as a geriatric millennial, you spared me the smartphone in high school. Thank you. But there's no going back there. You say, what do you think? Is this the moral revolution that we wanted? Think that's healthy for a 13-year-old girl? You think it's healthy for a 14-year-old boy? I said, well, why do the girls do it? They said, well, there's immense social pressure. Because that's how you become popular. You take the picture, you send it out. And there they go. So we're gonna commodify other people again. If I have that mentality, sex is a good to be consumed. I can't flourish without it. I can't be happy without it. I can have it as often I want with whoever I want. Inevitably, inevitably, people will become a means for my pleasure. And if we do that, people will be hurt. Secondly, what do we mean by reducing the relational to the procedural? We say, well, God wanted this bound up and integrated in long-term relationship, you say, well, we've long done away with that through technology, right? Everything now is about consent, okay? You gotta have that agreement. So you're there and you say, well, here are the terms, right? So it's not about relationship that I love this person and I'm with this person forever. The relationship's gone and what you've replaced it with is a kind of proceduralism. Are you up for this? Am I up for this? And what happens in the consent? What's really happening with the consent is that both parties are agreeing to please each other without it really meaning anything. Now, what we're about to do, we're doing strictly for pleasure, and we both know that this is casual, and it doesn't, it's not going to mean anything tomorrow. And in that sense, I think casual sex is a lot like the Inflation Reduction Act, actually. Uh, you, you, I, I mean, you, you can call something, you know, you can have my words, but not my definitions. You know that? I mean, you can call something that, and when it does the exact opposite, um, you know, you say, this is just this is just George Orwell, you know, politics in the English language. So here's the deal. You got a lady and a man say, well, we, we both want to have some pleasure tonight. And uh, let's both agree that this isn't going to mean anything. 
And then they have that act. And what I would submit to you, the one thing that sex is really, really good at is attaching you to another person. It has a knack for that. It has a knack for attaching you to them emotionally. And so you both, in a way, said that this is going to be casual, and then you spoke the language of love, that the act itself is the language of love. And so this then spills over into the very scary thing of the line between regret and rape. So you go out, have a few drinks. This will feel good. Consent in the procedures. The boxes have been ticked. We've both agreed that this doesn't mean anything. You go for it. You realize, actually, that's pretty good at attaching me to that person, and I feel not so good after doing it. I feel a little bit polluted. You get into that area of regret. So when we reduce the relational to the procedural, again, I think we're outside of, of God's best for us. One other layer on this matter of proceduralism it used to be that young people were a little bit intimidated to have sex, that that was deemed a big step. You say, now that's not the step. What's the step now? Again, at least for young men, so far as I can tell, is performance, whether they're good at it. Say, it's not a matter of if you've had it. Say, that, again, is long gone. But will my peers, will the ladies around me, know me as a person of great performance in that area? Have I out accomplished the others? And you get into, again, ideas of competition. So again, if we view that sex is an appetite to be indulged as long as there's consent, I will commodify other people and objectify them and hurt them. I will reduce something deeply relational to the procedural. And again, I will be in the weird position of calling something casual when it is in fact not casual and we're bending ourselves against our biology and our chemistry. And thirdly, is that we will become enslaved to our appetites. Like any good thing, that when it's indulged too much becomes a bad thing, and we become enslaved to it. Say, how do you starve an appetite? Right? Or how do you get rid of an appetite? You starve it. And so what will happen, you'll notice, is those who just say they have a lot of partners, okay? A lot of partners, and the boundaries have been really broken down. Uh, the use of the, you know, wider use of the currency cheapens it. So what will happen then, again, if you're single and you do that, that something creeps in as you get going in life, doesn't it? That you start longing for a real companionship. And I think amazing that, that marriage has proved, proven um, very durable. That people still do long for the one. And so here you say, well, I've listened to the cultural narrative of having a lot of partners, but now I really long for, for one it's very hard then to go back into the mold of, of, of being satisfied there because you are playing the comparison game. Uh, comparison because you've swallowed this notion of performance and you've had many partners and it sticks in the brain. And so there are widespread comparisons and quite frankly, what now would be called commitment issues. I mean, how many times, well, he's a good guy. He's got commitment issues. Well, why does he have commitment issues? Is because he has not had any parameters in controlling his appetites. And when you've indulged an appetite for so long, it is very hard to starve it. And in this area, as with any pleasure, we find a great temptation to sacrifice what we want most for what we want now. Say, let's face it, we wouldn't be having this discussion, we wouldn't be in the problems that we're in as a culture 
if sex didn't feel good. That, that's, not, that's not what we're talking about today, that we know that it gives pleasure. The real question is, is I'm going to lay down what I want most, which deep down for a lot of us is a long-term healthy family life, a monogamous marriage where I can have some stability and real love. That's what we want most. Will I sacrifice that for what I want now? Say you're single today. Josh McDowell, remember he told me, I was confused when he said it. He said, you know, you don't need to be married to be faithful to your wife. Huh? And I unpacked this. I said, well, that makes a lot of sense. Say you go around sleeping with people and life moves down in such a short time. You say, well, I've had union with another person's wife. And I've not been faithful to my wife. Not a good day. So I hope as we talk to non-Christian friends, and you say, you Christians, what is it that you believe about sex? Well, we see it's a good gift from God to be used within his parameters because inevitably if I listen to the cultural narrative, which you're trying to persuade me about, I'm going to objectify other people. I'm going to have to play this procedural game. And quite frankly, I think we all know that when appetites are indulged, they're very hard to starve. And I don't want that to hurt. What I really want is a stable partner in a long-term marriage. So this is why, you might be wondering, so why does Paul connect this to wronging his brother? Again, the language of, well, isn't this private? How's this going to, you know, do anything to anybody else? I hope in those matters, the three we just laid out, we can see why Paul naturally says, I'm telling you this so no one transgresses and wrongs his brother. Because these kinds of things hurt other people. All right. How about some bad news, then some good news to close out? Is that okay? All right. Bad news. Second part of verse 6. Control your bodies. Don't behave in passion of lust, because this wrongs your brother. And the Lord is an avenger in all these things. Again, what are you listening to? Do what you want with your body. None of God's business. Doesn't matter. Go for it. Good things. Go, go, go. Indulge, indulge, indulge. So here we have the truth. God, as a just judge, sees what no one else sees, and that each one of us will stand before him, and that these things will be laid out before him. And if they're not dealt with on his terms, it's serious business. That's what it says. See, God will judge, as the just judge, our rebellion. And our sexual sin is included in this. And many of us, I dare say all of us, have sinned sexually. And this is where I would just give an opportunity. Maybe you're here today. And uh, you know in your mind, you're real close to committing something outside of God's boundaries. You're really looking forward to a business trip this week, so you get some extra time with that person. And you're hopeful, you know, maybe it'll just, you know, it's not going to matter, you know, where we're at in life, this kind of immorality, no big deal, God doesn't care. God in his kindness would have our church family under 1 Thessalonians 4 today. Turn around. It's not worth it. The fire would get outside of the firebox. Lean on Jesus. Trust the Spirit to give you the control. Now, that's the hard news. What's the good news? The good news, friends, is that even though all of us have sinned sexually um, or at least been affected by sexual sin, that Jesus is a friend to sexual sinners and the victims of sexual sin. So in our room today, in our church, that there are victims of abuse, there are probably abusers, 
There are those who have aborted children, those who've pressured women to get abortions. There's those who've committed adultery. There are those who have addictions, those big A words, abuse, abortion, adultery, addiction, heavy, heavy things, right? You're not talking about this at the coffee shop usually. But this is true. What do I do? So much pain, so many hard things. Is there anyone? Is there anyone who can make me whole and forgive me for what I've done, restore me and you? Great news. God put forth Jesus to save weak sexual sinners like us. And he says, anybody who hears me, you come to me. You're broken in this world. You've been listening to the wrong narrative. You turn to Jesus. You can be redeemed, made right with God and live in right relationship with others. Will you turn to him today? Come to him, all who are weak and heavy laden, those broken and burdened and hurt. The Savior calls you today. You be right with him. So I ask you, what kind of church are we going to be on this stuff? Say, are we going to be a church that increases the shame? Well, you know, I pray we're not a church that is judgmental and increases shame on sexual sin. But I pray that our church models the way Jesus modeled his reaching out to sexual sinners, that it is a place of restoration and of grace as we turn and repent of our sin. So you used this example before, but you got a young girl who grows up in our church and she's, you know, I don't know, 17, 19, she gets pregnant. Is her first thought, there's no way I can go to church because that would be just a terrible thing because they'd all know this about, I would like it to be, this is the, the first place she'd come. The other church family who loves you, that we've all blown it in this area, but there's wholeness in Jesus. There's a way back. We can turn to him and be right with him. So he committed adultery. Oh, terrible thing, right? What do we do? Shame. It is a hard thing. Say we learn. God's an avenger of these things. But in Jesus, there's cleansing. And I hope there's a way back. Say, this is what I did. And it's a terrible thing. I repent of my sin. Is there anyone who could? Yes, the Lord Jesus for broken people like us. May we be a church that expresses the kindness of Christ, never at the expense of verse 6. Say we're not blunting verse 6, that God is an avenger of these types of things. That's why we need Jesus. That's why he went to the cross, to absorb the penalty that I deserved for indulging my own appetites at the expense of all of you and all the other people that I've come across in my life. We need a Savior. He's exalted on high. There's great news today. That's why we're here, to glorify him. Practically, I close with this. Men, Tuesday nights, Pure Desire Ministry, just a group of guys thinking about this great cultural tide. It affects every one of us, right? Didn't talk about, think about pornography. Does it commodify people? Absolutely. Does it reduce the relational to the procedural? Say procedural would be too kind of a word. There's no interaction whatsoever. Do we become enslaved to it? Absolutely we do. It affects all of us. Say so you're here today, you say, well, I, you know, I, I just have daughters. It's not, well, until your daughters grow up and they want to be married, say it affects all of us. Is there a place to talk about these kinds of things? You better believe it, all of us. Pure desire ministry, marriage mentoring ministry. So you get problems, things that have leaked in. You, another couple, there's, there's a way back. The care ministry, prayer, join a small group. May our church, again, be one that models wholeness and completeness against this great cultural tide. So again, friends, sex, good gift from God to be used within the boundaries. A wonderful thing, a good gift from him.
Not something that's essential, but something that's to be used, again, when we're married. We're called to self-control. This is a good thing because it gets us out of the spiral of our appetites and using other people as a means to our pleasure. And in the midst of our brokenness and our sin and all those scary and intimidating things, the Lord Jesus shines prominently, the pure man, the one pure man, and he calls today. He'll make you whole and complete. I'll pray. Father, thank you for this word today that, uh, that you, your will is that we'd be more and more like Jesus, that we'd be made like him. And this, in our culture, one way, just as in the Greek culture, amazingly, is how we use our bodies uh, when and uh, with who we have sex. And so, Lord, help us to see that this is not something to be embarrassed about, but rather this is a, what, what so many desperately long for, uh, 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 the clear directions of how to use this. So help us to see what sex is for and where it's good, why it's related to your economy, how when we listen to others that it's going to end up hurting people and enslaving us. And Lord, for each one of us who desperately, all of us need the Lord Jesus, thank you for what you've done for us in him people like us. May we come to him all the more, build us up in this truth. May we abound, as the word says, more and more.